Greetings and welcome to the Changing Waters podcast. This is Brad Warren, one of the co-hosts of this show, and we are brought to you by the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm very happy today to present an interview conducted today with Ray Hilborn. Ray is one of the most famous fishery scientists living. Um, Last I checked, he had more than 45,000 citations. He has, in the last few years, conducted a very thorough look at one of the troubling aspects of food production in our world, uh, which is the impact across many forms of environmental harm that occur when we catch fish or grow food, uh, whether we produce food on land or at sea. Uh, our actions take a toll, and it's it takes some careful work to parse the difference between the impacts that matter and the ones that make a lot of noise. Uh, some things get a lot of attention and are frankly less important than others that are harder to see. And in Ray's work, he's illuminated some of the key distinctions and pointed toward what we think are, in fact, some of the most important threats to healthy oceans and coasts and some of the choices we can make to be part of the solution. With that, I give you this interview with Dr. Ray Hilborn of the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fisheries Sciences. Well, I'm here with uh, Ray Hilborn and uh, really happy to have the chance to do this. Thank you, Ray. Um, and. Uh, uh, Ray has been doing some really interesting work on the ecological footprint of food production. And uh, it's that subject that we'll be visiting today. And uh, I, I think to begin with, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you to kind of talk through some of the, the metrics you looked at in this research that you have been speaking about lately. You know, the greenhouse gas and water use and so mm-hmm. on. Um, can you give us a walkthrough of the, the, the metrics of performance ecologically that you're looking at? Well, we've been relying primarily on data that are published uh, using a technique called life cycle assessment that uh, tries to calculate everything that goes into and comes out of producing something like food, like a car, whatever. Um, And the most common things that are measured in life cycle assessments for food products are energy used, carbon footprint, nutrients released, and uh, acidifying compounds, things that contribute to acid rain. Uh, In fewer cases, we find data on water use, uh, land use, um, soil erosion, uh, and then there's some data out there on, say, antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that is uh, very poorly quantified that's been a a major concern in fisheries has been biodiversity impact. but uh, those are sort of the, the major environmental impacts of food production that, that we've been able to find various amounts of data on. Right. And um, just to go to that poorly quantified piece first, mm-hmm. uh, because it's an important point, and it, it, even with poor quanta, it's clear that there's a huge distinction between land-based and sea-based food production in terms of biodiversity. Even without knowing a lot of it with great precision, um, there's a difference there. And I wonder if you can talk through that big difference. Well, the fundamental difference is that fish feed themselves. And uh, when we harvest fish in a sustainable way, 
we still have an ecosystem that is remarkably similar to what it would be like in the absence of fishing, that there are fewer of the target species than there would be. Um, but uh, the, the, we talk about the trophic structure, the food chain. And the food chain, uh, uh, if, it's, if it's well managed with a light hand, as many of American fisheries are, the food chain isn't changed very much. Um, in contrast, agriculture starts off by eliminating the plants. That is, you cut down the forest, or you plow up the, 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 the prairie, and you plant exotic species. So the, the natural ecosystem on the field is completely gone. You've, com- you've, you've totally transformed the ecosystem. Uh, so right from the start, any, any, any fishery is going to have a distinctly lower impact on the ecosystem than any crop production. Right. And, and that's very clear because you're looking at leaving most of the system in place versus removing it to get started planting seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to define the data you'd wish to have to be able to quantify the biodiversity impact of food production on land, what data would you be looking for? Well, the, the best data we've found is comparing the abundance of a whole range of species, from the grass to the trees uh, to the, 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 the deer and the ungulates that eat those things, uh, the rodents, the birds, uh, in a farmed ecosystem compared to uh, a native ecosystem. Uh, and there, because there are so few native ecosystems on land left, uh, there isn't a lot of, uh, of data like that, um, but there, there, is, there is some. And this is, for example, what you talk about, I believe, in respect to the Serengeti Reserve and inside and outside the reserve. Yes, yes. The, be- the best data set that I've been able to find published comes from Serengeti National Park, done by a, a, a colleague of mine at University of British Columbia, comparing the abundance of grasses inside and outside Serengeti National Park, the abundance of, of wildebeest or ungulates, the abundance of predators like lions and hyenas, the abundance of, of birds, the abundance of insects, the abundance of rodents. And you know what he's found there is that uh, in general, 80 to 90 percent of everything is gone outside the park, except for rodents, and there's more rodents outside the park. Um, is there any case in fisheries where the impact across the whole biosphere is that intense? I, 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 I suspect you could find some. I mean, places where there's been uh, dynamite fishing or... Um, uh, but uh, very, I mean, essentially, crop production eliminates the plants, and uh, you know, for most most of the ocean, the plants are phytoplankton floating in the ocean, and they they are never harvested. Um, in coastal systems, sometimes we harvest the the algae, the kelp, the seaweeds. Um, uh, so I, I, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find any marine ecosystem, the marine ecosystem that's transformed as much as a farmer's field. And as a matter of routine food production, then, that alone is a really major difference in the impacts of, of where we get our food from. Oh, yeah, f- very much. In fact, all the analysis I've seen uh, of 
how much the ocean has been changed by fishing suggests that the first base of the food web, the plants, essentially unchanged. The next level up, the things that eat plants, these are zooplankton, krill, largely unchanged. The third trophic level, the small fish that eat the the, the, the zooplankton, uh, all the analysis I've seen suggests they're actually more abundant now than they were before we started fishing because we have reduced the things that eat them, the big mm-hmm. fish. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a top-down control. There's a top-down top down control. Uh, and uh, and that's... that's uh, so what that suggests is you've got the first three trophic levels, which constitute 99% of the biomass of what's in the ocean mm-hmm. uh, is largely untouched or maybe even more abundant. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, in some places, particularly Southeast Asia, they fish much lower down on the food chain. They eat trophic level three and, in some cases, trophic level two. So they're, they're uh, and in fact, maybe even seaweed. Uh, so those ecosystems are much more transformed. But globally, um, there, there, there's very little, very little impact on the ecosystems until you get to the hydrophobic levels. And this is to be clear: you're talking about impact from production of fish, from harvesting from, from wild fish. Harvesting wild fish, yes. yes. And um, if if you were to look more broadly at the impacts of human, the human footprint, for example, here in Puget Sound, you would see the removal of herring and the removal of cod and so forth. Some of which seem to be functions of thermal and biogeochemical change. Yeah. You know. You'd see the removal of, of some of the, or the diminishment of some of the healthy diatoms and replaced with more habs. And, and so it's not that there's no impact from people. Oh, no, no, so, no. Yeah. I mean, if you go to uh, uh, a lot of ecosystems like, uh, say, the Sacramento River or San Francisco Bay, most of the species there are exotic species that have been in- introduced, whether it's fish like striped bass or the zooplankton. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's no question we coastal ecosystems have been uh, often dramatically transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, loss of wetlands. Um, uh, but it hasn't, you know, those big impacts have not dominantly been from the removal of the fish. They've been from other activities. Right. Um, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia has been uh, given a yellow card by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature as a as a World Heritage Site because they uh, not because they've been fishing it, but because they're not protecting it from land-based runoff of sediments from port development and farming and nutrients. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no you know the, the the big impact on the ocean right now is uh, ocean acidification and global warming. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, real, it's really interesting. I was at a, at a, at a conference a couple weeks ago where a guy presented data from, from surveys showing that if you ask scientists uh, what are the threats to the ocean, they would say global warming, ocean acidification, uh, uh, pollution, mm-hmm. and fishing, sort of in that order. Mm-hmm. If you ask the public, they would say plastics mm-hmm. and fishing. Right. And, and global warming isn't on the public's perception and ocean acidification. Public just hasn't really registered how big those impacts are and will be on the ocean. Right, right. I mean, they're, they're invisible. Uh, plastics are visible yeah. and charismatic. Yeah. They're, they're a beautiful problem to have. 
compared yeah. to some of the others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, ocean acidification isn't very visible. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 the drivers of it are uh, literally in mass terms one thousand times larger than the, than the plastic entering the ocean. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, if you um, if you look at greenhouse gases, uh, take, taking that as a as a mm-hmm. major component here. Um, Tell us a bit about the, the greenhouse gas gas in, impact of seafood production, both farmed and wild, and how that compares to land food. Okay, well, the, for, for 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 wild capture fish, almost all the greenhouse gas footprint is from fuel used to harvest, uh, and then uh, then it would be processing and, and getting it to market. So, uh, in, in in general. The, the two rules I would say are um, things that are caught efficiently have very low greenhouse gas footprint. So that would be uh, the, the, the winners are almost always uh, small pelagic fishes, sardines, mackerels, herrings, those things that are caught very efficiently in, uh, in, in large schools with nets that, um, that are, are very efficient. So the greenhouse gas footprint is, generally relates almost directly to the amount of fuel used per ton of fish caught. Mm-hmm. And uh, these kinds of small fishes are typically 50 liters of fuel per ton. Um, you know, in contrast, uh, say shrimp fisheries are maybe 4,000 liters per ton because mm-hmm. you, you're dragging nets through the water for hours on end and getting relatively few shrimp per, per hour. Um, in, in aquaculture, uh, the, the, uh, it, it really breaks into three major factors. One is, do you feed the fish? Uh, and, and so things that are not fed tend to be by far the best. And so farm shellfish are the classic example, mussels and oysters. Uh, they don't need to be fed. They, uh, so they, they are right up there with very low impact uh, carbon, carbon footprint. Then uh, the next uh, the next break point is: Do you need to use electricity to uh, to keep pumping the water either to aerate it mm-hmm. to grow the fish in the ponds? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the things that need to be fed, you've got all the carbon footprint of producing the feed, uh, but then things that that are fed but don't need electricity to circulate the water tend to be on the low end of aquaculture. So farm salmon uh, mm-hmm. is, is the classic example of, of those things. Whereas things that need to be fed and you need to pump the water tend to be uh, as bad or sometimes worse than livestock uh, as having quite high carbon footprints. And those things would be which products? Well, that would be uh, uh, farm shrimp, um, uh, most tilapia, most pangaseous uh, would. Uh, there's just uh, there, the problem in aquaculture is there's a very large range of production methods. In some cases, they are not pumping or circulating the water. In which case, they would probably be low. They may be using uh, uh, agricultural waste as their fertilizer rather than uh, industrial fertilizer. So there's a lot of variability, but. Sort of in general, uh, once you get uh, beyond uh, things that don't need to be fed, mostly in aquaculture, that's shellfish, and things that are held in net pens uh, and, and don't need to have, and rely on ocean circulation, 
um, then the, the, the carbon footprint of those forms of aquaculture is typically not particularly great. Right. I hadn't really looked before. This is an interesting point you make about the energy consumption required to do all the pumping in some forms of aquaculture. Mm-hmm. You're saying that's pretty significant as a source of carbon. And then you, 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 if you really wanted to get at that, you'd want to parse the energy source underlying. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's that's where, and, 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 and that's why a lot of aquaculture... And the literature looks bad because a lot, a lot of the studies have come from Southeast Asia, where a lot of the, the power is generated by coal. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if you were to do something from the Pacific Northwest, where it's hydroelectric, or Norway or Iceland, mm-hmm. where it's hydroelectric, then that wouldn't be a big carbon a carbon footprint. And that's one reason that aquaculture tends to have such very highly variable carbon footprints because it depends on. On a, there, there's so many ways to do it in so many different places. Right. Now, you, you, in describing shrimp fisheries and their footprint, I'm wondering if there's also a similar uh, diversity of impacts. Uh, for example, in I'm, I'm going back, uh, dating myself here, in, in FAO's 1994 report on world bycatch, uh, I think it was technical report 334, I, I remember, <laughs> um, Alverson and colleagues defined uh, a, an interesting distinction that was already visible then, I'm sure it's more visible now, between tropical, high-diversity di- high environments where shrimping occurs versus uh, northern and temperate latitudes where you have much less diversity and that net is towing through a simpler ecosystem and catching less other stuff. So the bycatch rates are lower. Bycatch uh, rates are uh, certainly lower. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. CPUE sometimes about is high. It, 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 yeah. it, it really depends on CPUE, you know, because yeah, yeah. um, so I know I've seen data for um, the Nephrops Norway lobster. Yeah. Very high, very high fuel use for, yeah. for those those fisheries. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, it just it really just depends on the CPUE. Yeah. Um, and that being catch per unit of effort. The, ca- the catch per hour, because, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a certain amount of fuel to pull a net through the water for an hour, and the footprint per per ton produced is going to depend on, this, on the CPUE, on right. how many tons you catch. And this is a big factor in the production. And then you have this smile-shaped curve that, you know, Peter Tidemers and others have defined, <coughs> where you go into transportation, and unless you're flying yeah. it, that's low. Yeah. And it goes back up again on the other end in consumers and 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 um, cooking and so on, mm. restaurants and, and kitchens. I wonder if you can talk about that part of the of the story. How does waste yeah. of the food play into this? Well, I mean that is certainly <clears throat> an issue for fish, it, because spoilage is so easy uh, that that waste is probably a little higher for fish than other other products, um, and. Uh, well, let's go back to the first thing is what you carbon footprint if it gets put on an airplane is going to be bad. It can be shipped around the world in a ship mm-hmm. with not a lot of carbon needed right because shipping is super efficient right but um, airplanes are, are are you know so anything that's you know if your sushi place says, oh, this is fresh from Japan that 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 should set off every warning that this has got a high a high carbon footprint um, but uh, you know, a lot of the of the footprint is after the capture, and it's uh, there's certainly like I've I've done studies in salmon processing, and the the processing footprint is probably roughly comparable to the capture footprint, mm-hmm. um, and then from there on it's the it's the it's the transportation, mm-hmm. 
and uh, and uh, and and all all the way through. And, and there haven't been a lot of studies of fisheries. Most of them have stopped at the at the dock. I so see. We have yeah. reasonably small data sets on, uh, particularly once you leave processing, once uh, you know uh, the retail, uh, the transport and retail, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, in, in some studies I've seen, there's a suggestion, perhaps not as well documented as some of these other parts of the picture, mm-hmm. but I don't know that, um, that there, the, the curve rises again at the consumer and retail end because of waste, because how much sort of mm. rots in the fridge, uh, gets cut poorly, and large parts of the meat get thrown away, all of those things. Oh, I just, um, I'm, I'm not on top of that. Yeah, so That's another piece, yeah. That's, an, that's another um, piece. Um, do... Um, uh, in general, uh, I think you've suggested that invertebrates have a high impact, uh, although there may be some exceptions. Uh, and it, it, is there uh, is that really because of the complexity of inputs to them, as well as the towing of the net through, you know, low CPU? You're talking wild capture invertebrates. Yeah, right, yeah, let's go there first, and then we'll go to okay. Then we'll go to aquaculture. Um, yeah. Well, certainly. Uh, well, there's a general correlation, uh, a, a very strong correlation between the fuel used per ton and the price of the product. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, when I say strong, I mean like R squared 0.9. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and part of that is just basic economics. You can't spend a lot of fuel to catch something you're getting $100 a ton for. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're getting $5,000 a ton for a lobster, you will go to the ends of the earth to catch one more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and a lot of invertebrates tend to be high value. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the U.S., shrimp is the you know is is a big one that is uh, consumed both farmed farmed and wild. And shrimp fisheries generally have quite high, high carbon footprint. Lobster fisheries typically have very high carbon carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that you can't find fisheries <clears throat> that are very uh, are very very efficient, and a lot of it, as we went through earlier, would come back to uh, to CPUE. So, if you looked at say Nova Scotia coldwater shrimp with a fairly high CPUE, you'd expect it to show up with a lower carbon number per unit. Of <clears throat> if if the CPUE is in, indeed higher, yeah. 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 Um, and I just, I mean, I haven't. I haven't seen enough data. I'm I'm not on top of uh, on top of that to really to really comment. Yeah, I'm guessing not knowing. Uh, I think there's a few of those fisheries that that m- might meet that test and look a little yeah. like pollock fisheries. Uh, yeah, is that right? Okay, okay, it might uh, be. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, if you if you switch the lens and look over at the aquaculture side, uh, do you see a similar uh, trend where the invertebrates run high? No, no, it's probably there. It's just the opposite because the advantage of the invertebrates for aquaculture is um, some of them feed themselves, the filter feeders, mm-hmm. mussels, oysters, gooey ducks. Right. That, uh, so they don't need to be fed. They, do, they, they You just put them out in the wild. So they typically come in uh, as uh, <clears throat> among the lowest carbon footprints of any food, uh, so generally lower than crops, so mm-hmm. you can't do much better than them, although uh, small uh, small fish, small pelagics are actually typically lower carbon footprint, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the, the filter feeding shellfish also have the advantage that they feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, um, 
uh, I mean, sorry, that they they're in the process of feeding, they also typically absorb nutrients rather than re- than release them. Now, if you get into farmed abalone, they need to be fed, mm-hmm. okay? But um, farmed shrimp uh, need to be fed. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's where it really depends on whether they have to be fed or or, or, or not fed. There's um, been a rise uh, in response to uh, concern about the impacts of salmon farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a rise of recirculating aquaculture, fully contained systems for salmon farming. You know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going into developing these facilities. Yeah. Uh, if you look at that trend uh, through the, the lens that led to its development, it's a big environmental win. If you look at it through the lens you're applying here, what happens? I, I, I haven't seen a life cycle assessment of it, but I just can't imagine it doesn't have a much worse carbon footprint than... Uh, um, the net pen culture, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that just that they they've got to build the facilities, they've got to pump the water, they got to filter the water. Uh, I would be amazed if it doesn't have a a much much higher carbon footprint. Um, it, but it does get around uh, some of the issues of disease transmission, sea lice, um, uh, escapement, mm-hmm. which are you know that's where uh, where salmon aquaculture has been uh, been hammered on, yeah. on on those issues. Yeah, and if the energy inputs feeding all of those processes, the pumping and so on, mm-hmm. uh, the water treatment, uh, if those energy inputs are from coal plants, obviously the impact is high. That's going to be bad. If, yeah, yeah. And then if if they are able to get renewables of some kind, you may have a different story. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. it'll be interesting to be to, to parse that. And that's yeah. a good, good one yeah. for the future. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in, if you're a consumer looking for guidance, uh, you're going to find uh, a lot of people who claim to know what you should do, <laughs> uh, and they don't agree with each other, and some of them stake out quite extreme positions. I, I mean, I noticed that uh, uh, folks here uh, took some exception to remarks by George Monbiot, who, or Monbiot, I'm not sure Mon- what, how you say his name. I'm not sure either. Uh, but I mean, th- this is an interesting man who is regarded by many people as a sort of useful and brilliant environmental philosopher uh, and I uh, and, and to see that that he's strayed into something that doesn't it, it, it produces unreliable advice is very interesting <laughs> and I, I wonder if you can talk about that um, but what what was it that he said and how how, how where, where did he go awry well but he said you, you shouldn't eat fish because we're emptying the oceans of fish. Um, when in fact, and he's, he's a writer for The Guardian in, in, in the UK, when in fact most of the fish that people in the UK are eating are very sustainably managed. Um, and then he, well, he, he then went off on, not on the sustainability of fish, but the equity issues that, uh, that, uh, that uh, in, in the UK, a reasonably small number of fishing companies Dominate the fishery and have the, uh, mm-hmm. the um, and and that's that's a, a generally a phenomenon that we're seeing in in everything in the world, whether it's crop production, beef production, pork production, chicken production, or fish production, that uh, that fewer and fewer companies are getting bigger bigger shares of, of right. the production. Um, so uh, I mean, he's he's just totally uh, off base. In terms of the sustainability of fisheries, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 
uh, so that was sort of my biggest objection. But I'm very thankful for his article because it generated like a 20-fold spike in readers of our websites. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, but uh, and and he's you know and he's a vegan, and uh, and there's no question that in a vegan diet has a very low impact compared to normal diets, but a pescatarian diet can give you a lower impact than a vegan diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, he's, he's, you know I, he seems to be a highly opinionated person who doesn't pay much attention to actual data about sustainability. Yeah, at least in this case. I don't know his work particularly, yeah. but I've heard people wax, you know, sort of euphoric about his writings, and well, I don't really know much about it. His fishery uh, stuff has always been yeah. way off base. Yeah, uh, that's good to know. Um, if we did what he instructed and what Sylvia Earle and others have done, mm-hmm. quit eating fish, go to land food, what would be the result? Well, the, the dominant way food production has been increased in the last 30 years is by bringing more land into uh, agriculture. And that land has dominantly been <clears throat> tropical forest. And so if we were to try to replace the it's about uh, 15 million tons of protein that comes from ocean fisheries. If we were to place, replace that with beef, <laughs> it would be the biggest environmental catastrophe you've ever seen. It, it couldn't happen. There's no way we could, we could produce that much beef. I think you had a, a, a way of expressing that in terms of how many England's worth of Yeah, yeah I think it was a, uh, if, uh, you, if you work out, so there's a, a been, if you use the published literature on how much land it takes to produce a beef, uh, I think it was 140 times the area of England would be would be required mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to replace it with beef. Now, uh, you know what? In reality, what would probably would be a mixture of beef, chicken, and pork because because in, unless everybody who's now eating fish was to become a vegan, mm-hmm. uh, it would be beef, chicken, and pork, and it would be a staggering amount of 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 of, of area required to do that and with enormous environmental consequences and people like Sylvia Earle and George Monbiot just you know they don't think about that you know they say that it's as if well if we didn't eat fish then there wouldn't you know people would just eat less Uh, and and the other thing is so stupid about it is that some of the poorest people of the world depend upon fish as their dominant source of protein and uh I mean, I've, I've been at meetings with Sylvia Earle where she told people from Pacific Islands they should not eat fish but should eat more coconuts. I mean, <laughs> if we were to switch to, I, I think from notes on your presentation a few weeks ago, I had 192 was the multiplier. It was 192 for, for yeah. yeah, okay, um, I'm, I'm willing to uh, believe that. The, the, uh, for grains, you were saying, I think, 5.4? Uh, I, could, I could look it up, yeah. Uh, uh, um, and tofu came out cleaner than other land food options, but still a multiple. Yeah, that's because tofu has a much higher protein content, but it still would take a very, very large, large area to uh, replace fish production with, um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you're t- starting to talk things on the order of the Brazilian rainforest mm-hmm. in order to produce that much protein. And the reason that rainforest is tropical rainforest is is where agriculture has been growing, is because that's where there is land you can reclaim for for ag that is, is, hasn't that, been used. Yeah, that's yeah. The, you know, essentially we have we have uh, converted 
pretty well all the land in the world that's suitable for farming to farming, with the exception of the tropical rainforests. And, the, and it, it, suitable for farming would then exclude the kind of northern taiga uh, forest country. Yeah, yeah. Too dark, yeah. Too, too much of the year. Too, too, too cold, yeah. too cold, too much of the year. And it excludes most of the world uh, where grazing takes place because there's not enough rainfall. Mm-hmm. And and there, uh, you know, the potential for irrigation in those places has been used up where it's you know where where you can irrigate it. Mm-hmm. So um, that that you know vast parts of Asia and uh, vast parts of Africa are grazed but not farmed, mm-hmm. and those are places where uh, there just isn't enough rainfall in order to to, to uh, maintain crop production. So to switch food production to a more rainforest intensive agricultural method. Uh, sweeping out more rainforests, replacing them with crops, would increase clearly a biodiversity impact. And I, I, you, you've presented some interesting information on that, comparing it to some spots in Costa Rica. I wonder if you could describe that. Well, that's just uh, I've got some some. If you if you compare the biodiversity in a farmed field to the biodiversity in a native habitat, particularly a tropical habitat, uh, that uh, it's just it, it's there's there's just no comparison. So, uh, I I've, I use these pictures of a uh, of uh, where they go. Uh, this this group went out with one cubic meter and put it in a cornfield and said, well, how many species do we find? And the answer was about six. There, you know, there was some ants. There was corn, uh, and uh, I can't remember some one or two other. Insects, mm-hmm. and if you compare that to going to a tropical rainforest in a cubic meter, you might find 100 to 200 species mm-hmm. of everything from from birds to insects to plants. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know the the loss of biodiversity in um, when we when we convert tropical rainforests to uh, to agriculture is is enormous. Yeah, and then you have the carbon footprint you talk about. And you, yeah, you have both. We have the carbon footprint both of the land conversion and the staggering amount of carbon that's released when you burn down a native forest, and the ongoing carbon footprint of producing the crops. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that the way we think about these things, and I think the illustration of George Monbiot or whatever his name mm-hmm. is, and Sylvia Earle, is a good one. Are you, that we're tending to think in silos, mm-hmm. um, and. Would you go so far as to issue a call for scientists and policymakers uh, to engage in a, a more boundary crossing out of their own marine specialties and terrestrial specialties, and think about the folks over the fence line? Oh, ab- absolutely, and and particularly for say the NGOs that provide fish advice. So if they say, don't eat per seine caught yellowfin tuna. And say, well, if we were to not eat that, what are we going to eat? And what's the buy? You know, they're they're not worried about. That's actually turns out a pretty carbon efficient way to produce produce food, but it has bycatch of uh, depending upon exactly how you do it, has bycatch of sharks and 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 some some other things. But if we didn't, if we wanted to replace, say the five million tons of tuna catch or I got three five million tons of skipjack yellowfin catch uh, by another form of food production what would you want how would you want us to do it and show me that there's a lower cost so I think that 
you know, WWF Marine ought to talk to WWF Tropical Lands, and uh, you know, let's let's come up uh, with with some uh, some advice on what we should do. Certainly, we 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 almost any form of fishing we can do better. Okay, we can we can reduce the environmental impacts. We can make them more fuel efficient. We can reduce the bycatch, etc. But um, I, I would say let's think about the alternatives and maybe uh, recognize that a lot of things that that the marine people may think have too high an impact, actually <clears throat> the alternatives are worse. And we we should accept that we we sh- we should actually encourage people to eat some of these things. That right now, they're saying you shouldn't eat. So the the message on that, in a way, is all lunch has a price. Pick the one that's cheaper. Yeah, that's that, that that's right. And and I think for a, a a wide range of metrics, you're going to find that that uh, a lot of fisheries and a significant portion of aquaculture look better than the alternatives. Mm-hmm. This research must have had an effect in your life, and, and I, I'll, I'll finish with this yeah, question. Okay. Um, how have you made different choices both in food and in travel? Oh, I'd like to say I've totally transformed my, uh, my <laughs> diet and travel. Um, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons I would like to avoid getting on airplanes more than I do, but I haven't been very successful at it although maybe I haven't made I haven't made the high status airplane system in a while so maybe I am reducing my uh, <laughs> my air my airplane flights um, uh, and I certainly think about my food choices more um, and uh, I really try to avoid well I, I very rarely eat beef mm-hmm. um, never we never buy it but when you're traveling sometimes it's an option um, and uh, I like I, I eat a lot more fish than I used to, mm-hmm. uh, and mostly frozen fish. So I know they haven't been on an airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, and um, yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I should actually keep a food diary. Probably eat veg, veg and very rarely eat meat except. At Dinner, meat or, or fish, and probably three or four nights a week. Most don't certainly don't have, you know. It, I grew up as my mother was family was from Iowa, and it was meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. Every, every, literally every. I don't think I ever ate fish mm-hmm. as a kid until I went to had school lunch with fish sticks. Yeah. Um, so we'd probably eat vegetarian three three nights a week. No, about three or four nights a week. I don't know. Um, and when you eat fish, are you selecting for low impact? Well, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm mostly selecting fish that I know. Mm-hmm. So living in Seattle, it's coming from fishermen I know. I'm very lucky mm-hmm. that I can buy fish directly from, from fishermen. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't eat uh, mussels nearly mm-hmm. as often as... Uh, we, you know, in some sense, we should because they are so low, low impact. But and every time we eat them, we say we should do this more often. But mm-hmm. it's probably only a couple times a month. Eat salmon, probably a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, black cod, things. Uh, uh, don't eat a lot of halibut, but because uh, it's, I'd say expensive. <laughs> yeah. But black cod's as expensive. But uh, um, so, 
I, you know, it's it's affected me, but not transformed. Right, right, right. Ray, thank you for taking time. Okay, I appreciate Brad. the chance to have yeah, this visit. It's always fun. Yeah, great yeah. work. That was Dr. Ray Hilborn of the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fisheries Sciences. And we're very glad to present that interview. Uh, this is Brad Warren closing out for the day at Changing Waters, a podcast brought to you by the American Shoreline Podcast Network.